Hi, and welcome to Match Cut, a movie podcast where we take two movies with the exact same rating on IMDb and break that tie. My name is Aaron. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Matt. Hello. Hello. This episode's matchup is about assembling a specialized team of individuals to fight in fantastical battles to really serve one or two people. Grab your signature weapon, load up your licensed music playlist, and practice your superhero landing. It's Suicide Squad versus Sucker Punch. Ooh, that that was good. I I, I like that. I, I feel <laughs> good you. about that one. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, I mean, I think we both we both seen both of these movies before we watched them for the podcast, right? I think that this is the first time that that's happened. Yeah, because of my woeful movie watching history, usually there's one that I haven't seen, but both of these I had seen before before we watched them. Did you watch either of them in uh, theaters or both of them? I did not. I did not spend uh, money to watch Suicide Squad. I did spend money to rent a DVD of Sucker Punch back in the day. Yeah, I think I, I got Sucker Punch through Netflix DVDs back when that was still popular. I wonder if that is still popular with a certain subset of people. Like, I mean, I definitely hear about, like, you know, rural, more rural parts of the U.S., like, just having shitty internet. So, yeah. if, like, the mail can get to them in one day, it's probably worth it. Right? Like, man, remember when it was a big hullabaloo when they fucking tried to take away, like, and change all the pricing and they were going to make Flickster, I believe? That was the thing? They were, yeah. were, were going to spin off the DVDs and do another thing to cut operating costs? Yeah, I, I do remember that. Oh, man. I mean... And everyone told them, bad idea. <laughs> and they listened, which is the most surprising part of all. Well, I think the interesting part about that is they listened in a sense. It's like, okay, we'll just make DVDs cost what we were going to have a Flickster subscription cost in addition to your streaming subscriptions. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious what the numbers are of just like DVD only rentals because it's got to be someone but i think like keeping those two services together probably a lot more people are like well i'll just use dvds to supplement you know the online catalog i mean i remember when it, when i first signed up for netflix it was like uh it was like how many dvds you want and then also we have this streaming thing <laughs> yeah and so i remember signing up for like the two like one dvd out at a time and unlimited streaming because yeah. They very early on did a thing with Xbox Live uh, back in the day when it was the 360 era, probably around 2010 or so. I want to say that's probably right. Um, where it was on Xbox and you could just stream through your Xbox rather than on your PC, which was like great because I got a bigger TV screen than I do a PC screen. Right. And so they also had one of the best features ever. And it was in an Xbox Live party, you could get four people together to watch a movie on Netflix and it would sync everything up. Like you didn't have to like, okay, hit start now. Uh, are we synced up? Okay, good. Oh no, my internet's buffering or anything like that. Like one person was the host and invited people into their room and it had your little Xbox Live avatar. You could do little chants and cheers. Very similar to the, the thing we use often, uh, Rabbit to watch yeah. movies uh it's just not the same though with rabbit like there was just something special about getting three friends together and watching a movie that uh, yeah. is lost now because xbox live changed something to do with their service and that 
that ability was lost via on Netflix's end. They they couldn't do anything because uh, Microsoft changed it. They changed it. Now it sucks. <laughs> yeah, considering the struggle that we sometimes go through to like watch the same movie at the same time, yeah. that would be that would be great if maybe. I wish Netflix would maybe do something like on their site so people with two accounts could just log in and sync the start at least. And then, you know, it could just be one person's internet as opposed to like one person streaming and one person like receiving. Yeah. The few times we've used Revit, it worked great, which for the last one, it was the, the most flawless, easy movie watching that we've done. Because we just used Rabbit, we just logged into my Netflix. The hardest part was me removing my goddamn Netflix password. <laughs> but I mean, isn't yeah. that like the true of anything? Is remembering what my fucking password was. Oh, I'm, I hit the attempts. Now I got thirty minutes before I can try again. The the real first world problems. The the firstest worldiest. <laughs> so yeah, I I paid to watch Sucker Punch uh, via DVD. Yep. Same. Um, so in trying to find, you know, the bacon number for these movies, I mean, these movies obviously have huge ensemble casts, um, which makes it really easy, but it's kind of like, all right, where do I start? So I just chose, um, well, first I looked at the top, the top build actors, which would be Will Smith and Emily Browning. Um, they have like five different versions of two degree connections together. Um, however, what I eventually landed on was the two blondes in pigtails, Emily Browning and Margot Robbie. Um, so Emily Browning was in the 2009 horror movie, the uninvited with Elizabeth Banks, who was in the Lego movie Two, the second part with Margot Robbie, who was also playing Harley Quinn in that movie, uh, along with some other characters. Um, but both of these movies have scored a rather lackluster 6.0 on IMDb, uh, but one of them must be better than the others. So why don't we find out? But before we get to that, we can't talk about these two movies without talking about studio interference in movies. So uh, we both looked at some other uh, instances of studio interference and thought we'd talk about that for a little bit. So, yeah, what uh, films come to mind when you think of studio interference and what do you think of studio interference? So one of the interesting examples that I found in kind of looking at this stuff was uh, Rogue One. Yeah. Which the standalone Star Wars movie um, takes place in between episode three and episode four. Just in case my mom doesn't know what it is. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, there was studio interference, I guess, in a positive way for this movie. Um, from what I was reading, some of the, you know, the movie wasn't really coming together. Like it's, you know, Disney obviously had recently taken over Lucasfilm. Um, they kind of needed this to be good. So I wouldn't say uh, it was had recently taken over. I mean, they'd already produced a Star Wars film that was done. Uh, but I agree with you that. They needed it to be good. And you can you can kind of actually tell when you watch the film when the studio interference starts because the story starts making sense and going to place. <laughs> yeah. There's also like a couple scenes um, in like the trailers that never made it into the final cut of the film. Like I think the notable one being um, Jin Urso, the uh, female lead, 
in her shot of like wearing the imperial like black armor like that just never shows up in the final film yeah so i guess um a lot of the changes they made were like fleshing out characters and a lot of revisions to kind of the third act like action scene where you had like a battle up in space you had a battle on the ground you had like um a battle for the death star plans and it just like could be this huge confusing mess see um, episode one <laughs> exactly um so the studio kind of came together they brought in like three additional people to like do edits and reshoots um and made a made a good movie so I um, I think that the studio interference on Solo made an even better film when they replaced the two directors and put Ron Howard in charge of the production. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to, I think during this episode, you know, we'll kind of talk about where studio interference got it wrong. I just wanted to present like at least one example where like, hey, you know, sometimes the studio does get it right. It's not always, you know, sometimes studios have to step in and sometimes it's for the better. Well, it's like another positive studio, uh, you know, studio demanded reshoots uh, is to Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, They thought that George Miller was just wasting money in the Tunisian deserts. And then they saw Mm -hmm. the the rough final cut of the or the rough first cut uh, didn't become the final cut, obviously. They're like, oh, this is awesome. We're going to give you more money and have here uh, here. Add more. Add more movie. Give give (laughs) us more. More of this. (laughs) And so he did. And then they promptly fucked him on his $10 million bonus. Mm-hmm. Which is now means we'll never get Mad Max films because while he might not own the uh, distribution rights, he owns the intellectual property rights to the films. And yeah. so you cannot make a Mad Max without George Miller until he dies and his estate sells it off. But mm-hmm. I mean, that might happen sooner rather than later. He's not a young guy, but. I, I assume that the the rights holders that take over are gonna, you know, respect his wishes to say fuck Warner Brothers. <laughs> because the big the the worst thing about that though is not that we're not gonna get more Mad Max movies. It's that he had like, oh, I got a Furiosa script, I got a prequel script, I got an, another Mad Max script. It's like he had more stuff to do in that universe, mm-hmm. and it's like you're you're. You got a, a license to print money because that movie made a shit ton of money and you're squabbling over $10 million. Yeah. Which sounds like a lot in isolation, but that movie made like $300 million? Yeah, I was just about to check like budget versus revenue, but... Well, see, I that's where it... the that's where the dispute comes in is because like if you get it under right. this budget and it's like, OK, I got it under that budget. They're saying, no, no, no. Our accounting is showing that you didn't get under that budget. Yeah. The mysterious black hole that movie budgets are. I think we've talked about it. Yeah. IMDb doesn't even have the uh, the budget stuff, which I mean, it's exactly. under, like you said, it's under a lot of speculation. And yeah. Um, like as an aside, the coverage of the behind the scenes of filmmaking is detrimental to the film watching enjoyment. Like yeah. the more you know about a film, the less you enjoy it. So it's like a uh, recent case of that is uh, Endgame and Captain Marvel. They didn't film Captain Marvel until after Endgame. And so when Brie Larson was filming her scenes in Endgame, Spoiler, Captain Marvel, she's in it. 
she uh, she had no idea what her character was really supposed to be because they hadn't filmed her own movie yet. And so yeah. you get these weird production schedules. I can't even remember the point I was trying to make other than just talking. You had started out saying like, oh, you know, you want to know less about like how the sausage is made versus just going yeah. in and watching a movie. So yeah, like knowing that when I went to watch Captain Marvel, it's like, okay. And then when I saw Endgame, like the next day with you actually, mm-hmm. um, like you could tell it's like, wow, there was really no meat on her bones for that script. It was literally yeah. just like, and then they just, and spoiler again for Endgame, a little bit more serious now, is she's barely in the film. She's in the first few scenes and the last, and the last big battle scene. That's it. Yeah. It's ridiculous. We we had talked about a little bit like, you know, expanding the podcast, you know, for our own behind the scenes. Talked about like, oh, you know, hey, what do we want to do for this intro segment? We had, the idea came up of like, oh, do we want to cover movie news? And I was just like, I have zero interest in covering movie news. Like, I'm happy to watch the final product, but I think it's the same kind of maybe exhaustion that you feel with, you know, there's there's too much to cover and ultimately so much of it like doesn't matter for the final product because it's going to be judged by itself anyways well i think it also spoils your own opinion of a film knowing too much about what's going on because like by the time specifically suicide squad came to theaters everyone knew that that was a troubled production Mm -hmm. that there was multiple things going on behind the scenes. They didn't know the extent and we still don't know the extent of trouble, but we heard about onset antics that Jared Leto got up to um, that really (laughs) upset a lot of people outside of the production, like fans that were consuming this information of things he did. I don't want to tell you what he did because I don't want to spoil your opinion on the film. If you don't like the film, you don't like the film. And if you don't like Jared Leto for X, Y, or Z reason, that's fine. But should we know what an actor is doing to be in character, especially if they are a more method actor? I don't think we should until far after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, one last thing though, is like some studio interference that like comes to mind as well is in the alien franchise. Uh, it was a studio decision for the first film, but the script was written with this option in mind to change the genders of the characters. And so, because they were written as genderless characters, basically, it was like, this is just a name on a piece of paper. You can change it however you want to create whatever composition you want. And so, originally, uh, Tom Skerritt, who plays Dallas in the film, was attached to be Ripley. However, in the pre-production phase, they think, you know, like, it'll be a little bit better. Like, what what if we change it to a woman? And so they did screen tests for different women and eventually Sigourney Weaver was the one that got the role. And so they had already cast Tom Skerritt in the production. And so they gave him like uh, what would be the typical hero role in any other sci-fi film. They gave him the captain of the ship, Dallas, which is a really good misdirect. Sorry to spoil it if you've never seen Alien. Yeah, I, I haven't watched it, but I know like the basic structure of it and everything. And you were bringing up something about that, that they had like, they, they changed the ending or something like yeah, that. Yeah. So I guess originally they had intended for Ripley, you know, the main character to die at the end. And the studio came in and said, no, 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 we need a sequel friendly ending to this movie. She lives. And so she did. And it spawned, you know, what is generally a great series of movies regarded as such. 
Yeah, it's a good thing they ended after two films. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, there's studio interference on Alien 3, which no, there I've was, heard is bad. There was, there was never it. an Alien 3. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, studio interference, I think, you know, requires a delicate touch. You know, I think anymore that you have... St- Studio interference can't help, as we've seen. It can definitely hurt as well. And then it depends on also the egos involved in the production. However, I feel that anymore, films are so focus-tested, focus-grouped, that you end up with scenes that appeal to an audience, but not don't make a good film. Right. And I think that kind of segues perfectly into Suicide Squad. <laughs> So on to Suicide Squad then. Uh, Suicide Squad is a 2016 film based on the comic book by John Ostrander, written and directed by David Ayer. For some reason, John Ostrander, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, goes uncredited in the movie, um, despite the fact that the modern iteration of Suicide Squad was his idea. Um, That may be a decision made by DC, but I I wanted to at least like shout him out for, you know, his work in bringing whatever this movie was to existence. Um, Anyways, David Ayer is best known for his writing and directing in End of Watch, Bright and Fury. Um, I'm I'm also going to interrupt you very briefly here. David Ayer also wrote Training Day. He's more known for Training Day and End of Watch and Fury than he is Bright. Yeah, it's a, you know, superhero-ish movie, so I wanted to like toss it in here. Yeah, but uh, Ayer was also part of the writing team that brought us the first Fast and Furious movie. I so actually didn't know that. Thank you, David Ayer. <laughs> he was one of like uh, I think three or four people who ultimately did the writing for that movie. But too small many cooks part. spoil the broth. I mean, Fast and Furious is, as we know, the perfect movie. So, and also had a movie that just doesn't exist in that series. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so suicide squad uh tells the story or how do I... does it <laughs> it tells a story suicide squad tells the story of the past and the furious <laughs> i watched that i i didn't i didn't write a good transition into like the summary of this film anyway capitalizing on the fear the next superhero could easily become the next super villain Ruthless team killer and all-around unpleasant person Amanda Waller begins to construct Task Force X. She assembles most of, some of the most deadly and reprehensible villains so that they might fight the next big threat. And hey, if they die, it's no big deal, which makes them some kind of a suicide squad. As luck would have it, the next big threat is already here. The suicide squad is yanked out of their hellhole in Louisiana and whisked off to Midway City to fight a supernatural threat. However, what they find there is a little more than what they were forced to bargain for. I hated this film. <laughs> uh, well, there it is. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone. <laughs> this is a movie that had room to be much, much better. That is the most generous thing you could say about it. <laughs> I, I'll, I'm going to... We we were, what, 20 minutes in when, when I had you stop just so I could yell at how frustrated I was at the movie already? 
Yeah. The intro to this movie is basically characters being introduced again and again, like two or three times. For the first 40 minutes of the film, it's reintroducing the same characters over and over again. Yeah. Like... Uh, it, it starts weird. It, so, it starts like in media's in media res, which is like okay, I guess that's what they're going for with a plane going to the this black site prison in Louisiana, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it goes, oh, it has like some stylized of you know what these characters are and do, and it like cuts away from that to do something else, like to talk about one of the characters and like build some story and set the stakes and all that, and then it cuts yeah. to Amanda Waller talking to a general at a dinner. Which is, you know, famously was the the first trailer, which introduced all these characters to us. <laughs> yeah, this I in in looking at to go back to our earlier conversation about studio interference, like these shots specifically with the graphics and the names and everything were something that was added in like after test audiences saw a cut of the film. So this stuff was specifically studio interference them adding something to like appease moviegoers who honestly don't know what they actually want so well also the the issue with test audiences is you're you're not getting you're getting people that you select that don't pay to see a film that are seeing a rough cut of the film and asking for honest feedback on a film Mm -hmm. like and these aren't you know, film laureates or majors uh, and studies of the screen these are just random people you've met random people they're not reliable sure i've i've seen a jury pool before yeah i think the 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 biggest issue is in going back to the theme of studio interference is when they did the reshoots and the re-edits of this film there was five different editors brought on none of which are credited other than the final editor who is one of the degrees of separation correct uh, John Gilroy, who was one of the editors. Well, he was, he connects to Rogue One. He was one of the guys who was brought into Rogue One to re-edit. Okay. And so he gets the final credit of the final cut, but there were four uncredited editors. And at one, and David Ayer did agree to these re recuts of the film, but it was apparently a very frustrating and strained process where at the end of it, he was not present for the final cut. Yeah, what I had what I had read was basically like they had a studio version of the film and they had the David Ayer version of the film and they basically what they released was a compromise of those two. And everything sucked because of it. Yeah. So like one of the things that um, we talked about during the movie is sort of like, like, why was this edited in this way is um, after the everyone's introduced for the third time at um the like black site when they're all kind of unpacked out of their crates and everything. Yeah. Um, they show a shot of the lab equipment. Um, I don't remember the lab's name, but the, the guns they're going to use to like insert the nanite bomb into everyone's necks. Yeah. So they, they kind of pan over it to like reveal the name of the lab. And like, then 15 minutes later, whatever it is, then we get the jokers like raid on this lab and you would think in typical like movie f- fashion, because we're both obviously movie experts, um, you would show the Joker's raid first and then you would have like the kind of pan over shot that they did 
revealing the name as kind of like a oh hey wow that's what the joker was doing not this like remember this name it'll be important later for something that already happened maybe this this movie's pacing its placement of scenes its tonal whiplash from one scene to the next mm-hmm. god we get oh god it's just it it wasn't enjoyable it, like by any stretch of the imagination like i was telling uh some people at work that like I watched this for the the podcast that I'm doing. And it's like, it made me want to commit suicide. Uh, (laughs) Then they both agreed that they saw it in theaters and made them want to kill themselves. That is not the reaction you should have to what you want to be a tentpole film in your DC cinematic universe movie, which by the way, this is the second film because you've done Superman. Mm Mm-hmm. They hadn't done, no, no, they'd already done uh, Batman versus Superman. Right. And they'd done Man of Steel, the Zack Snyder one. Yeah. So this was your third film out and you're already going for the, here's a rogues gallery film. Like, wait, what? They're just now considering that for Marvel. I believe Thunderbolts is in phase four. Thunderbolts is the exact same premise. Get a whole bunch of uh, villains together as a counter to superheroes and eventually, hopefully, they'll be reformed. You can use them for whatever jobs possible. Right. I think most of the problem with this movie, at least to my eyes, like like I said, maybe I'm a little more positive about it than you are. But like, I really think that there was good, interesting stuff to be explored in this film and just through a disaster of editing. I mean, maybe the maybe the footage was never there to begin with. But the editing in this movie is what stands out to me the most is what like made this movie so difficult to watch and just like, I know a lot of the stuff you're talking about with like the tonal whiplash, like the comedy, more of the comedy stuff was added later. Um, We should mention that we watched the like special edition or like director's cut of both of these films. It was real special for this edition, (laughs) you know, in an attempt to just kind of get like as close, maybe closer to the original vision of the directors than, what came out in theaters and even even with that like a lot of the comedy i think is forced like there's maybe one or two scenes where i like genuinely laughed but like I the don't... bars the bar scene it just oh god doesn't hold up really well i think and, god. and pacing wise it just it kills the pacing we're going into the third act we're going into the do or die like situation and all of a sudden Let's stop and have a really long scene where El Diablo finally gives his backstory. Yeah. And then like that's set up for the payoff at the end of like, you know, I've already lost one family. I'm not going to lose another. But but this film has not established them liking each other or growing together and caring for one another. Right. And I think the bar scene was supposed to be that, but it just like it. It obviously didn't work. And Killer Croc is just there. Yeah. No, you know who's really just there is um, Slipknot. Oh, God. <laughs> he is just there to set up that, like, yes, these nanite bombs will, in fact, blow your head off. And I can see in a David Ayer cut of this where no one is given any special treatment or extra scenes, that working a lot better. Mm-hmm. But 
because we know so much about what's going on behind the scenes. We know this is a troubled production. We know you're not going to kill off Will Smith. You're not going to kill off Margot Robbie. You're probably not going to kill off Jai Courtney. You're definitely mm-hmm. not going to kill off the main hero, Randall Flagg, play, played by Swedish man, Joel Kinnerman. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> jo- Joel Kinnerman is super damn Swedish. Yeah. Also, there's an Eastwood in this movie for yes. no discernible reason. <laughs> I th- Well, Scott Eastwood, like, I want to like him. I don't think he's a bad actor. I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that he's going a different route than his father. Uh, he's not trying to be like the tough guys. He gets tough guy roles because he's attractive. Yeah. Um, but I- I've liked him in the few things where he's got a little bit more room. Uh, it was really bad in Fate of the Furious where he's just like, here's our stand-in for O'Brien because Paul Walker's dead. And so we'll have this character be a hothead that's in a few scenes. Yeah. I think just generally having the soldiers there in Suicide Squad, like... It reminded me of a Michael Bay movie. Mm-hmm. It was like, why why is this soldier team here at all? Yeah. Here's here's the colorful people with the interesting powers and backstory, and here's the people in the olive drab who, you know, I don't know, play the audience surrogate, like I deliver know. exposition. I don't. Again, I, I I really wonder what Day of Air's cut of this film is, like what he was doing. Um, but I don't see any reason to have a military team with them. You already have Flag as the military guy. And it already feels weird with Flag and Deadshot, Will Smith's character, together. Because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, here's Flag. He shoots real good. Here's Deadshot. He shoots real gooder. <laughs> Even gooder I also... So speaking of studio interference, um, again, Will Smith, when he comes onto a production... Uh, he has his own guys that punch up his parts of the script and give him something that he likes. That hit. That's why Will Smith roles all feel kind of the same is mm-hmm. because he has guys that come in and make him be Will Smith. Just which, actively support the typecasting. Right. The other thing that he requires, to my knowledge, is a strong bond of fatherhood because... His father was not present in his life, and so he wants his characters to have that. And that's mm-hmm. fine. That doesn't work for Deadshot. Yeah. At all. I, I, any scene with him and his daughter, I'm like, they're fine scenes. They don't belong in this film. They don't belong to this character. The first scene where they introduce Deadshot and he's haggling over Price with the, the, the cartel that he's about to kill a witness for... And he's like, you know, you got to pay another, you know, another million for being a jackass. And then he <laughs> yeah. goes down and just fucks shit up. That's great. I'm glad that they're reinterpreting Deadshot in a different way. Deadshot in the comic books is a white guy, for one thing. Don't care mm-hmm. about the race. Doesn't matter. Different versions do different things. Um, but the other thing that Deadshot is in the comic books is an arrogant aristocrat that only kills people for the challenge of it. Yeah. So he'll create crazy scenarios for him to have to land a singular shot. Mm-hmm. And that's what he likes. That's that's how he gets enjoyment out of life. I like the idea of this dead shot being a little more grounded in reality, being like, I'm here to make money. I don't care. I'm amoral. That's all I'm here for. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the daughter stuff 
feels like shoehorned in. I think there's a more interesting version of it where, you know, he has this hard and fast, no women, no children rule, kind of a trope, but whatever, I get it. Which I don't think the dead shot of the comic book shares. I think maybe kids, but that's only because what comic book's going to sell where they just shoot kids in the head. Yeah, I feel like maybe the daughter thing could have been like, I don't know, revealed later, similar to like what we felt about like the Enchantress and Rick Flagg's character. I, I definitely feel that that was the original intent of the Ayer cut, that, mm-hmm. which is a thing now that we're codifying as real, <laughs> is that he wanted to keep the Enchantress a secret until like the last act. And it would be revealed that he was in love with, you know, the doctor that is the Enchantress alter ego. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why he, yeah, that's why he is personally invested in this thing. And that's right. Then it leads to the, like the greater blue beam of light into the sky tragedy. Um, which by the way is the wrong stakes for this film. Mm A hundred percent. It's like what made solo an enjoyable film. I don't know if you watched solo. The I did. Yeah. Is because they weren't trying to stop the end of the universe. They weren't trying to stop the Empire. They were trying to get fucking paid <laughs> and stop yeah. getting dead. That was it. It tied a little bit into like the greater struggle at the times of what's going on. But it was like, that ain't me. I ain't a guy who believes in shit. I'm, I'm about me. And that the whole yeah. movie is reinforcing that this is a guy who is, is about himself. And it's him finding himself from the young idealist that he was to the hardened smuggler that he is when you meet him in the first Star Wars film. Yeah, and then in Star Wars, he has that character turn from, like, self-centered jackass to, like, you know, person who's gonna fight for the little guy. And that's good, so you don't have to have it in Solo, and thank goodness they didn't. And, you know, then you have this movie where it's like, okay, we're gonna team up and take down superheroes it's like okay we'll take down a superhero then like don't or do something like i again i i brought this up when we were watching the film i feel that the original idea was to go after the joker i think mm-hmm. there was a there's probably a script out there where the joker is the main bad guy and they're and they're probably like using harley quinn to draw him out because they want to get him because they want to do the one thing that the bat couldn't do yeah also, rip Ben Affleck Batman because he would have been a pretty good Batman. This movie, the few scenes with him as the Batman, they work. Mm-hmm. There's, what, two scenes? There's the, the scene where he uh, takes down Harley Quinn. And there's the scene where he takes down Deadshot. Yeah. And, and of course, there's the post credits stinger scene for the, the Justice League. Like... <laughs> Why would they put the big ensemble film right after two other films? Like, it took five films for them to get to the the Avengers, and you're trying to do it in two? Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, even if they didn't use the Joker, like, the the Joker and Harley buildup, like, could have just been straight skipped. Like, um, similar to Spider-Man Homecoming, where it's like, okay, we don't need to see Uncle Ben get shot again. Like, we all get it. Like, we know how Bruce Wayne becomes the Batman. We know how, you know, Joker and Harley Quinn get together. We don't need this whole, like, flashback uh, to them coming together. I would say that you kind of do because Harley Quinn is a newer character. 
And so if you're not immersed, if you didn't watch the animated series growing up, and if you didn't um, pay attention to that, you wouldn't know Harley Quinn's background. Yeah. And so a little bit of background establishing who, who Harley Quinn is, is fine. But I think the amount that they shot for it is not right for this film. It's right for a Harley Quinn standalone film. Mm-hmm. Which, isn't that a thing they're trying to make? Uh, at this point, I feel like so much stuff gets rumored and announced. It goes back to my thing of, like, I don't follow, like, Hollywood industry news. It's just, like, I'll watch the movie when it comes out. Or, more accurately, I'll watch the movie six months after it comes out. And I finally remember <laughs> to get around to it with at least DC Cinematic Universe movies. But I still have not watched Justice League, and I still have not watched... Um... Aquaman. I have no desire to. I watched Justice League and it pretty much like, uh, I just don't care about this franchise anymore. You and Ben Affleck both. (laughs) Well, at least we got that in common. So one of the things, just to go back to it real quick, like with the Enchantress thing, like they do this weird cut where like the Enchantress like getting loose, getting away from uh, Rick Flagg. There's kind of a weird cut the first time it happens. And this goes back to this like editing stuff of like you put this cut in. There needs to be some indication of time passing. And all of a sudden, there's, you know, I don't even care about this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they shouldn't have given us any information. They should have kept us in the perspective of the Suicide Squad. They wouldn't yeah. know shit. They shouldn't Hold- be telling them shit. And we shouldn't know shit as the audience until you tell the characters so that when they have the, oh, this is bullshit, this is what we're here for reaction, we yeah. feel the same way. When when Deadshot finds that binder of, like, here's who the Enchantress is and here's how she's connected to your group and, like, look at this shit that Rick Flagg has been doing behind your back, like, that should be the reveal. And maybe it was. Maybe in the original cut it was. And then we skip the, the bar you have a different scene of him being like, you're free to go, but I'm going to get my girl kind of thing. And they're like, you know what? Fuck it. He's been here with us. He's on the ground with us. Mm -hmm. We can't abandon him because he hasn't abandoned us. Yeah. And so you at least build up the trust that the reason they trust him is because he's in the shit with them. Yeah. And where, and it's a good change from like originally, you know, we see the, um, the bad, like mutated, whatever human things like trying to, kidnap flag and like at this point we all know why because of because we're already aware of rick flag and the enchantress like history together but that could have been a good mystery and then you know like the suicide squad originally wants to save him just because like hey if he dies we're all of our heads are going to get blown off into like oh you know i think he cares about us let's help him out you know small character moment Thing. That just that just reminds me of this total non-payoff of like the relationship that these people have built where Deadshot intentionally misses a shot on Harley Quinn because Amanda Waller has asked him to kill her. Mm-hmm. It just it doesn't it doesn't play. And all the every like the 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 military team that's with Flag and Flag and the rest of the, the Suicide Squad like kind of give him that like, yeah, nod. And it's like, no, no. <laughs> None of that works. This movie is basically just a travesty of editing. And, (laughs) you know, now we know that, like, it was studio interference. I mean, and maybe Ayer's cut wasn't going to be good, but I 
from everything I read, it was more the studio was concerned about the tone of it and too dark, right? They thought yeah. it was too. And it's like it's, you got a, a villain story. They're villains. Al- it was also, also it's a- straight up called Suicide Squad. Like um, originally, they were. Uh, it was originally going to be an R film, wasn't it? Or is it an R film? I can't remember. Uh, I'm not sure. What was this? This was so this movie released with a PG-13 rating. So maybe there's an R cut. Maybe that's what David Ayers was. <sighs> that's um, what you, that's what you need from this film. You need an R cut just so they can curse, just so they can kill, just so that like because they're villains. This is not your hero story. This is the villain story. Yeah. They're not good people. Deadshot murders people for money. Yeah, and like you can keep your hero stories PG thirteen, PG, whatever you want them to be. But like, hey, maybe take a break with like this and make it R. Yeah. So, uh, so like this film, it's a foregone conclusion what we're gonna say. But this film is just not enjoyable. And I don't remember hating it this much when I first watched it. I was more in the Aaron camp of watching it. Where I was like, there's a there's there's a better edit of this film possible with what we have here. Mm-hmm. And it's literally just rearranging scenes. You're just you're just changing scenes, probably getting rid of some of the the poor, poorly placed jokes. Um, I feel that they should have killed off another member of the Suicide Squad as well, because at the end of the day, the only one that dies is uh, Slipknot. Does uh Diablo die? No. Damn it. I mean, it's like maybe <laughs> But no, isn't he in like the final like hug scene? I honestly don't remember. <laughs> and also like that again, the emotional payoff of that scene, like I can totally get his character once you've established that he's like, uh, I'm going to die at peace. I'm not going to use my anger and violence and all that stuff. Cool. Repentant villain. Because mm-hmm. in the uh, in the Batman comic books, he was a villain and now he is like an anti-hero to hero depending on the story. And he's a newer creation. Perfectly fine to have that be his arc, but to hit, to have him care about the Suicide Squad, to care about Harley Quinn, to care about Deadshot, to care about Killer Croc, to care about <laughs> Rick Flag is yeah. a stretch. Yeah. Well, I, I just to end it on one good note, the soundtrack is awesome. Oh, full but, of bangers and bops. But every time it comes on, it's just like, this is where you spent your money, huh? Yep. <laughs> How All many right. platinums did the soundtrack go? I I think it just went the one platinum, but that's insane though that they put together a soundtrack with a whole bunch of original music that isn't even used in the the movie for the most part, and then the, that soundtrack to this film that is not a good film. I'm gonna <laughs> just blatantly say it is not a good film. Do not watch this film. <laughs> yeah. Other than. I think as a case study for like, just, (laughs) I mean, this would be a good film to watch in like a a film school, like what to look out for when making a big budget tentpole movie, what to avoid, how to edit. Like you could show it as like, don't do it like this. Also, it's an Academy Award winning film. (laughs) This is the worst Academy Award winning film I have ever seen. It won Best Makeup specifically for Killer Croc. 
Uh, <laughs> I mean, his makeup is good. It's practical. I ain't hating the, the people that put their time, blood, sweat, and tears into this production. I'm hating the yeah. product that came out, and it's a shame because you could tell there were people that really cared about what they were making and wanted to do something different, and the studio didn't let them. Yeah. So, quick side note, double platinum for the soundtrack. You're right. So, when we come back, we'll be talking about a much more enjoyable film, Sucker Punch. Yay. All right, and welcome back. Uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to Sucker Punch. Sucker Punch, which is a 2011 film uh, written by Zack Schneider and Steve Shibuya and directed by Zack Schneider. Schneider is best known for comic book movies, including 300, Watchmen, Man of Steel, and Justice League, as well as uh, the remake of Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Sucker Punch is actually the only movie that Zack Schneider has made not on a pre-existing property. Steve Shibuya has only written this movie in the upcoming 2020 film, Tourist. The rest of the IMDb credits are a grab bag of miscellaneous jobs surrounding movie production. It's kind of similar, just real quick, to one of the things we've seen before, which was the guy who worked on Gone Baby Gone. I don't remember his name, but they kind of like work in and around movies and then get this like one shot to do something big and then I think just kind of fade back into obscurity. So that's... I want to like, I almost want to come up with like a name for that, but that's, that's what a uh, old Steve Shibuya did. One script wonders. Yeah, that could work. After she is locked away in a mental asylum by her abusive stepfather, baby doll wastes no time in planning her escape with a bottomy appointment. Only five days away, baby doll forms a team of five girls to get the five items they'll need to break free. Within the theater of the mind, the objectives take the form of fantasy heists involving giant samurai, steampunk soldiers, massive dragons, and killer robots. However, their plan is uncovered, the mono truth is upon them. Now, Baby Doll must find the fifth time item before it is too late. Man, this was a breath of fresh air. Uh, <laughs> All right, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie this is the first time we've ever done this we watched these films back to back like mm-hmm. 100% we didn't watch it in another day and let it simmer we watched Suicide Squad and then Sucker Punch and to say that Sucker Punch was just a treat after Suicide Squad was a goddamn understatement <laughs> yeah it's it's definitely like despite these having the same rating on IMDb like these are two, I think, vastly different movies in quality, like far more than I think any of our other stuff has been. Um, yeah. And I mean, we should cover, I think, part of why this this movie got kind of lambasted by critics. And I think it was, you know, again, to bang on the studio interference drum, like we had a cut that wasn't Zack Snyder's original um, vision for the movie. Yeah. And you had this difficult kind of parsing of like, is this movie empowering? Is it just like, is it exploitative of women? And I yeah, think- I mean, I think a lot. Sorry to interrupt you. I think a lot of people want to lambast Zack Snyder as some kind of misogynist, mm-hmm. which this movie is him kind of saying no, 
but at the same time, it's falling into a lot of trappings on the surface of what you'd expect a misogynist to make a movie about. Right. It's like, here's these scantily clad women jumping around in short skirts and, you know, and there's like this whole burlesque framing of like the theater of the mind. Right. And, and you get, you get this very kind of problematic from a, a like that. It's like why, uh, Frank Miller of Sin City fame is kind of sidelined now is because to him, all women are either whores or trying to manipulate you. Mm -hmm. And so it's this really interesting thing. Like in this universe, we're watching everything through baby dolls eyes and the movie, it starts off with a very classic um, uh, imagery of curtains rising. Now, yeah. whenever that happens uh, in the language of cinema, it means what you're watching is not reality. Mm -hmm. And so from the get-go, this movie is already saying nothing that you're seeing is real or how it might have actually happened. He's not going for a version of reality, not even a stylized version of reality. This is complete fiction all the way through. I think it's very easy to like look at this movie on the surface and say like this is anti-women, this is whatever whatever and you know I I obviously have the qualifier of like I'm not a woman, I don't fully understand whatever whatever, but I've seen like the quote-unquote male gaze, you know, I've seen what that looks like especially in anime. Like I watch a lot of anime and Which this draws heavily from in terms of visual reference. Exactly. And so I've seen it in anime where you just have these unnecessary shots of like these like low cameras, like looking at women's asses, long drawn out shots of like breasts bouncing unrealistically. And this movie is not that, at least not as overtly as some of the like trash that gets put in anime. Like you don't have gratuitous upskirts. You don't have like, you know, unnecessary low camera angles. This movie just does not strike me as, you know, offending in that way. So I think like if, if you're just going to look at the surface, I think that is like the most obvious thing of like, no, this isn't like, you know, what it often gets put down as it's not just this male fantasy thing. Well, I, I mean, that is even part of Zack Snyder's critique of people talking about this film is that they didn't get the sucker punch aspect of it. There is a very good reason he called it sucker punch, because the movie is hitting you when you don't expect it with something you and he talked he talked a bit about it in some interviews very briefly because he didn't you know want to over um, explain it. And I think he has his own thoughts on it that as a artistic person, he doesn't want to spoil people's uh, view with a one true interpretation. But his, his thing was if you came in watching the trailers and only wanted to see what is in the trailers, you were missing the point of the film because the trailers showed you one thing and the movie is telling a story that is different than that one thing. There was a group of people that were upset that it wasn't just girls in school, school, Japanese schoolgirl outfits fighting robot samurai and, uh, you know, uh, steampunk World War I Germans and orcs in a bomber. Yeah. 
Um, most of the criticism was leveled against, like what you said, with uh, apparently this was objectification of women. Now, I will say you can definitely see that if you view the female form presented in a sexual light as explicit objectification. Yeah. But at a certain point, it's like, do you, are you asexual? Do you not get any, do you not feel anything when you look at a woman? I guess is the sense I can understand the criticism that like, well, you turned them, you turned a mental asylum for girls into a brothel. But the counter to that is that is how baby doll is escaping her reality is by viewing it like that. And it's informed by her backstory, which I feel is masterfully told in this film. It's very brief right after the opening credits set to, I believe Emily Browning singing a version of Eurythmics, uh, Sweet, uh, sweet dreams, mm-hmm. uh, and that song uh, overall again. Sweet dreams. It's a dream. This is all dreamlike. It's reinforcing the tone and the narrative of the film. Yeah, and also I think, especially in like the theme of the burlesque, which you know, all yes, there's a prostitution angle, but it all starts out as burlesque. And burlesque, I think the the interpretations that I've heard of it is that it is empowering for women because it, it shows this like female control over the men's reactions where you have, you know, the woman is in charge of where the show goes. It's not like sleazy lap dances with touching. It's, it's just like, this is a woman up on a stage and she is, you know, in charge of what's happening here. That kind of segues a bit into something that it was cut from the original version mm-hmm. of the theatrical version of the film that is in the extended cut. And it is the second to last, the, the, the longer scene with John Hamm in it as the high roller. Right. The high roller is the person that is buying baby dolls uh, virginity, purity, whatever. Yeah. Her. And there's definitely, that is treated as a very bad thing. However, the scene that is added with John Hamm in it completely changes the tone of what goes on. It His character explains that he's not going to force himself on her. He's not going to make her, you know, do anything that she doesn't want to do. What he needs from her, what he desires from her is her to give herself over consensually because he's looking for that little spark of something. Yeah. And, but that can only be given with consent you can't take it. You can't buy it. You can't force it. You have to earn it. And so it turns the the theatrical cut version of it, which is implied rape, into a consensual act, mm-hmm. which is, a, again, a problem that Hollywood has with sexuality in general. Uh, that's also, I believe, why they cut the uh, the big dance duet number with Oscar Isaac and I'm sorry, uh, Carla, uh, uh, Gugino, Gugino, uh, Gugino. Anyway, and Carla, Carla, uh, Dr. Vera Gorski and, uh, blue played by Oscar Isaac, uh, who's perfect scumbag. It's great. Um, where that it's it's this dance number that's kind of showing off the girls and the ideas to entice men to you know spend money to buy the girl in whatever number. Yeah, the one one of the things I did want to add with the cut John Ham scene 
And in making this important distinction between like him kind of, you know, taking her virginity versus her giving her virginity. One of the things that Emily Browning had to say on the subject um, was maybe not specifically that this was studio interference, but MPAA interference, because similar to Suicide Squad, they wanted a PG-13 rating and um, the MPAA who gives the ratings to movies. Well, let me just read the Emily Browning quote. I had a very tame and mild love scene with John Hamm. It was like heavy breathing and making out. It was hardly a sex scene. And I think that it's great for this young girl to actually take control of her own sexuality. Well, the MPAA doesn't like that. They don't think a girl should ever be in control of her own sexuality because they're from the Stone Age. I don't know what the fuck is going on and I will openly criticize it happily. So essentially they got Zach to edit the scene and make it look less like she's into it. And Zach said he edited it down to the point where it looked like he was taking advantage of her. That's the only way he could get a PG 13. And he said, I don't want to send that message. So they cut the scene and it's, it is frustrating to me because I have, I have strong feelings about the MPAA and like their place in art and criticism. And um, most of it comes from uh, this movie, not yet rated. This Uh, film is not yet rated. Right. This film is not yet rated, which is on Netflix or at one point was, maybe you can catch it there, but like the MPAA um, kind of acts as this like censorship board because Effectively, you can't get a movie out into theaters with an NC-17 rating. And part of that is the theaters who refuse to play them and the, you know, advertisers who refuse to advertise for a NC-17 movie. But the MPAA sort of serves as this censorship board where you have to appease them because otherwise they just slap an NC-17 rating on it and your shit just never makes it out into the general public. That's my soapbox for the MPAA, but fuck the MPAA. <laughs> yes. It's, you know, as an aside, going back to our fucking talk about Netflix, it's almost like we're goddamn sponsored by them. <laughs> um, is I think Netflix actually serves an important step forward for films as art is because mm-hmm. you can get a film distributed on Netflix that doesn't have a rating. Yeah. The, you, you don't, you don't, the, the show altered carbon there was a lot of like straight up full frontal nudity, men and women mm-hmm. just there having it. Um, it's because they produced it and they don't have those censorships in place. There's not a content distribution restriction on them doing that. Right. Now they can advertise their own stuff. They can publish their own stuff. They host it. They, you know, it's all internal. And so I feel that there is a definite orchestrated attack against Netflix original films because when you look at it, every time a Netflix original film comes out, regardless of what audiences say, critics are already panning it. Uh, The biggest one I can think of is Bright. Now, Bright has its own problems, Mm -hmm. but the fact that they were talking with such vitriol and such negativity about Bright before it came out, right as it came out, trying to kill it, it feels like a, there is a concerted effort by the studios and the studio system that is in place nowadays, as well as the MPAA and other, and the theaters, to not let Netflix fly as an alternative to releasing your film. Yeah, and they're, I feel like they're kind of making strides, at least in like 
they're you know being recognized in some award shows now. I can't remember. Do they have something in the Oscars? Uh, Beasts of No Nation, the film with Idris Elba, was nominated for Best Foreign Film, I believe. Okay. I don't know if it won. I know it won some other, I believe, a Palme d'Or at Cannes. Uh, yeah. That's, that's a film that you couldn't get through the studio system. Yeah. Oh, could... the, oh Roma. Roma is a Netflix film. That's right. Um, yeah. Also won uh, Best Foreign Picture. I didn't. I haven't watched it yet, but they are getting some legitimacy from the Academy. And every time that happens, I feel that there's pushback whenever one of their more commercially viable films comes out. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, they, oh, we'll let you have the art house stuff. Yeah. But we won't let you step on our big fucking blockbuster films. Right. You make your little stuff that wouldn't show up in like a Regal or an AMC or like, you know, that threatens some of our other stuff. You make your little art house movies and we'll recognize them. But as soon as you step out of step out of that box, like then we're going to have problems. But I think it's very telling that, um, you know, talking about creative freedom, you know, it ties into this film is Zack Snyder had to edit down a scene that felt like he was for, like literally the scene is she is taking charge of her sexuality and he had to edit it in such a way that turned it. She is being raped. So he cut the scene. Yeah. So good on you, Zack Snyder. And fortunately we at least got to see more of his original vision in kind of this extended cut thing because i think like this really helps the movie and without this i see why you know that might have contributed to a lower rating or like but i think mostly it was just people maybe misunderstanding the movie or taking a too surface level read of it i mean and i think that was his intent that there was multiple things going on with this that you know you're you follow baby doll but she is not the hero of this story She's not narrating it in the beginning. Mm-hmm. She is not even when it first switches from the quote unquote real asylum to the the board the brothel burlesque theater. What it, who is in the 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 seat about to get uh, lobotomized? It's Sweet Pea, right? Played by Abby Cornish, and she's wearing the blonde wig and and she she literally says, "I am the star of this show." Mm-hmm. because her character is the main character <laughs> yeah there's there's definitely like a level of subtlety that's in this movie that is just nowhere in suicide squad you know there's there is no, there, there's nothing deeper in suicide squad it is all surface level you said it best when we were watching it this movie is a collection of trailer shots <laughs> yeah i think man i I read too many articles on studio interference, but there was one movie where they just like straight up hired a trailer making studio to like re-edit the film. I'll have to go back and see if it was Suicide Squad, but I don't think it was. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to speculate too much, but like maybe that's where maybe some of these sucker punch trailers came from as opposed to showing the actual movie. I mean, I think that some of that does deal with the contracts and the stipulations you put in as the director or what have you. And certain directors can get away with like limited, you know, like I will cut the trailers myself kind yeah. of thing. Or with my editor, we will cut the trailers for you. Mm-hmm. 
rather than you hire a third party to cut a trailer and get rid of context of scenes or use scenes that aren't going into the final cut. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like the, so the other half of this movie is kind of the visual aspect. And I mean, that was a huge part of like my enjoyment of this movie is like these crazy, you know, alternative visualization theater of the mind stuff. The theater of the mind stuff is great. It's like really, really interesting to to explore these little mashup worlds that we all do. Like at least nerds like us do, you know, <laughs> yeah. where we think like, what would it be like to have this version of a, a world war one battle going on where there's a, a mech in it and, you know, <laughs> right. fighting with that. And like, what would it be like for these girls that are empowered by their abilities in this fantasy world as an extension of their their second tier fantasy world of <laughs> imagining themselves as you know dancers that helps them escape from their own realities but yeah it's just it's and the the the, the theming with the music that they choose like a uh, white rabbit for the first one that is yeah. um, again a reinterpretation and mashups going on yeah decidedly spot on for like what this movie is like you know we're going to take these mashups of genres and these mashups of music and this is it's a really good combination and i think um especially for an eight-year-old movie like the cgi even holds up really well yeah Um, because it's stylized enough like it's you know you're you're looking at things that are not trying to be 100 percent real and so therefore your brain gives it a pass mm mm-hmm and like I've been watching those like VFX artists react to CGI that series on YouTube, which yeah. is good. I think I think people should check that out. But like one of the things that they talk about that I noticed in this movie, especially like in the dragon scene, which I think is like the CGI that holds up the best. Um, you know, they consciously shot it in such a way and in such an environment that you have like you know one source of hard light on this like fully CGI model and you can hide some of the details and shadows and like focus on the details you are showing. And I think that really helps it like hold up. And I think there's also a, like a really good blending of, of practical and CGI, or at least there appears to be. Um, yeah. You see that the most probably in the first dream, uh, the second dream sequence, the world war one sequence mm-hmm. um, where there's definitely a lot of there's a lot of extras in that one with practical effects makeup going on and practical effects, you know, gadgetry on them, as well as the fully CGI robot uh, battle suit that Amber is using. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the like on that same, excuse the pun, train of thought, the <laughs> the weakest CGI is the is the like train robot scene where you have like fully CGI robots fighting and some of it gets covered up. I think by those like trademark Zack Snyder, you know, camera whipping around people like zoom in, zoom out, slow motion, normal speed, slow motion. Those types of cuts serve to to hide some of it pretty well, but I still think that that's like the weakest of the, of the CGI shots. Yeah. But I, I, again, I think him using his style, his, his stylistic editing and use of CGI helps hide it a bit better than other, like other uses of poor CGI quality. Mm -hmm. It's just, he, 
because of the time he went through film school, it just seems that he has an understanding of CGI that a lot of older directors don't, or, you know, not to level, maybe the level of like a Guillermo del Toro with how do we do Pacific Rim and make it look good? Uh, okay, we don't do any fake camera edits. We we treat mm-hmm. the, the, the fake camera as a real camera. He doesn't do that, but he uses his style in such a way that the action is never boring and it's always interesting to watch visually while being um compelling and keeping you in the scene yeah definitely holds up really well soundtrack another another fantastic soundtrack like i know we talked briefly about some of the covers and stuff but i think it fits the movie perfectly the mashup style or like mashup cover kind of style is great yeah also shout out to emily browning for singing on a few songs in this Always, uh, I think uh, Oscar Isaac also sung on the song that was added um, as well. Yeah, which Oscar Isaac, also a great singer. Mm-hmm. Um, overall, I think uh, this film just, you should give it a rewatch. And if you didn't watch it because you were turned off by saying, oh, it wasn't very, people saying it wasn't very good or uh, it was it was boring or it was all pretty surface level. Again, I think that that's what upset. That's what disappointed Zack Snyder the most is that people didn't see past the surface level. The overall message of the film is basically you have the tools at your disposal to live the life you want to live, but instead you choose to fantasize and escape. You need to stop doing that. You need to face reality and take back control of your life because Sweet Pea the hero of the film <laughs> apparently went into the mental uh, institution just for her sister rocket played by Jenna Malone of Gretchen from uh, Donnie Darko fame, who by the way, has the, the, the real interpretation of anime hair. <laughs> yeah. I, I was hesitant to say it because after you said that it was all I could see in the movie, but she's got, she's got some anime ass anime hair. So if you ever want to make anime hair in real life, just watch Rocket from uh, Sucker Punch. You'll be like, <laughs> oh, that is totally what it is. But at the end of the day, you have to take control in your life. You have to take an active part. People can help you. There'll be people that you don't know are trying to help you or that you wouldn't expect to help you. But you have to be the one. You have all the tools at your disposal. Use them. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the theme of the opening as well. Like people mention a guardian angel and that guardian, or not people, but the narration mentions a guardian angel and that guardian angel is baby doll. Like that's her role in this movie. Yeah. And uh, another thing that kind of weirds people out is like, well, how does Scott Glenn show up as the bus driver at the end? If he was in baby dolls mind again, this isn't baby dolls mind where this is sweet pea telling the story of baby doll. Mm-hmm. And what she and maybe she's imagining what baby doll like maybe she said some stuff to her uh, about some things and she used that to create this more fantastical character for someone who, if you're to take some of what happens in the the brothel as more real than obviously the dances, that to help Sweet Pea escape, baby doll sacrificed herself. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, that's a heavy thing to do for someone else is like, 
I'm going to be lobotomized so that someone else can have a life. But mm-hmm. at the same time, the the character of Scott Glenn says to Baby Doll in the first dream sequence that the fifth thing is something she won't know, but it'll be a perfect victory. Because not only does her getting lobotomized expose the corruption of Blue, it exposes what her stepfather did to her and her sister as well as possibly killing her mother that yeah. she wasn't a hundred percent responsible for her sister's death which is told over in the the intro sequence yeah and if if you do go back and rewatch this movie please watch the extended cut there's some stuff in there that is vital i think to what this movie can be but there's also like a lot going on in this film. Like within the first intro of Baby Doll walking through the the asylum, she sees everything she needs to escape. She sees the map. She sees the exits clo- uh, opening when there's a fire. She sees the closet. She sees the the uh, the key around Blue's neck. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of that going on in the opening sequence. The the letter opener used. It has the same design as her katana in the dreams. Yeah. It's a movie that rewards rewatching too. Like definitely more so than Suicide Squad. Well, also the thing that that Sucker Punch does really well is that the scenes don't break the tone of the film. You would think going from a fantastical samurai robot Gatling gun fight back to a brothel dance number would totally like whoa what's going on here but no it like because there as a consistency with the actors and the 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 script because it wasn't so heavily uh manipulated after the fact with reshoots with re-edits with too much re-editing with oh we got to punch up the humor so let's add this scene it doesn't it flows from one scene to the next very quickly i didn't even though these are like the same runtime aren't they or roughly the same or close enough they're both about two hours. The Sucker Punch felt way faster. And, you know, to your point of, like, continuity, especially, like, in the train scene when um, Sweet Pea has to say, like, you know, goodbye to Rocket because of the, you know, incident outside with the knife and, like, you know, it get, the goodbyes get played out, like, in the, in the train with the bomb. Yeah. So... Should we should we go to our final judgment talk? I mean, we kind of everyone knows what's going <laughs> so on Aaron, here. <laughs> Aaron, of these two films, which would you watch again? Which is the better film? Oh gosh, you know, after much deliberation, hard, careful thought, like it's. I mean, it's Sucker Punch. <laughs> like it, it, hands down, Sucker Punch. I think this is the the first time we've been in a hundred percent agreement. It wasn't a hard choice. Um, by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, as again, a disclaimer, I went in with Suicide Squad, remembering that there were problems with it, but remembering I didn't hate it. Yeah. Like I, I, I watched it voluntarily of my own. I'm like, there was some frustration of like, man, it could have been good. When I watched it again this time, I was angry, upset. We had this, we stopped multiple times to vent about how, what problems we were having with it. We had to stop ourselves a few times because we were going to record this and we didn't want to ruin our expectations of each other's conversation and just talk, talk it all out. Yeah. This Suicide Squad would be maybe like one of the few movies where I would want to like 
really, really deep dive into it and maybe like record something to accompany the movie. But I don't even know if we could do that because, you know, we talked. That like, would require for 10... me to watch Suicide Squad, <laughs> Suicide Squad again. I don't want to do that to myself. <laughs> yeah, and also I think some of the some of the problems are it's just like it's this one. It's it's like this small stupid thing that they did in editing that is like. You know, now we got to talk about it for 10 minutes because there is something like so severely wrong with or, you know, that we think is wrong with how they handled what's going on here. Like, especially um, I think the one thing we talked about for a while was like the Enchantress when the, when she loses control. It's just like, all right, what the hell just happened here? Because we just lost 20 minutes of time and it's not well done and and like. We see the same events multiple times, and it's not even like the, the, the second time is giving you more context for it. The second time is just a, like a scene that should have been there the first time. Or it shouldn't have been shown the first time. It should have been the full scene the second time. Yeah, and especially compared to Sucker Punch, where, you know, Sucker Punch, like, really needed to be edited the way it does because, like, there's a lot of good, like, match cuts you know, in between the dream sequences and like, or like the fantasy heists and the brothel scenes, which I guess they're both technically dream sequences. But like, this is like inception levels of like, hey, we're going down another level. And if you fuck up the editing in that, like your movie's gone. This is a movie that relied so heavily on editing to like make it make sense. Yeah, I think Zack Snyder... I think had he released it at a different time in his career, it might have been better received or maybe even worse received. But because 300 became such a meme about these sweaty men mm -hmm. that were, you know, like sweaty and naked, basically, and like the homoeroticism of it, the fact that his follow up to it was what appears on the surface intentionally to be the exact opposite kind of film. Right. Like Sweat, sweaty think, girls now. <laughs> right. But. Uh, a funny thing is, the men in 300 uh, wear way less than the women in Sucker Punch. Yeah. The women in Sucker Punch, again, to your point of the male gaze, um, at no point are they 100% objectified by the camera. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to note that as we've been you know, watching and re re recording these, I recently started to rewatch one of my favorite shows, Burn Notice, which is set in Miami. And I'm noticing a lot, like there are incidental shots, there's tracking shots, there's introductions to scenes where women are walking by in a bikini. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. It's set on Miami Beach, whatever. But literally, it's just her torso and legs. The woman's head will be cut out of frame. If you're talking about objectification, they have completely removed women as anything but an object in this show. Yeah. Like here's, here's breasts and legs. That's that's all they're showing. Never does this movie do that to the women in this movie. There might be a shot where it is framed a little bit. But again, like when the women are in the, the dream sequence of like fighting. Yes, they're wearing provocative-esque outfits, mm -hmm. but they are not just there to titillate. Yeah, it's a burlesque show. It's, you know, the, any any titillation is is almost intentional and, and part of it. And it's because I feel like the women are more in control of it. And it's not, you know, shot as if a man was looking at her, if that makes sense. 
one of the things that stands out to me or stood out to me in watching this was when baby doll flips over the samurai sword, like in any other anime that's, you know, all right, here's the upskirt shot, you know, like, yeah, we're going to see some panties. That's going to happen. I, I think. I can't even remember if we see Emily Browning's underwear ever. I don't think we do. I, I think, isn't she wearing like a uh, legging things as well? Or yeah, is she just she wearing has, the thigh high stocks? She has thigh high stockings. So, but at no point does it feel like that is what they're focusing on. Whereas there's some definite objectification in Suicide Squad of right. Harley Quinn. Yeah. And this is not like, I, it's, I feel like it's kind of tough to make a for sure judgment because of like Harley Quinn's character, but like Harley Quinn is the type of character that would do it. But then the way that that shot is presented is like, it's the literal male case because you, every man in that area is just like staring at her and yeah. it's, it's shot in a way that like, this is what the man sees, not what the woman is presenting. I don't know if that sounds like sucker punch is more interested in showing the actions of the women rather than what the women are wearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, Harley Quinn's whole outfit is just like, all right. <laughs> it's real extra. Yeah, it is. Um, which is which is interesting for Margot Robbie. Like, it's it's a shame that Suicide Squad is as, as bad as it is because they had a fairly solid cast, a fairly good director, and the studio just couldn't keep their hands out of it. Yeah, and I just want to put in the quick qualification that like none of us have seen David Ayer's cut but it has to be better than this, right? <laughs> One hopes. And I would guarantee it's at least more coherent. Yeah. Knowing his other films. Yeah, definitely. So I, I think that's all of our, our thoughts on uh, Suicide Squad and Sucker Punch. Did you have anything you wanted to add? No, I think I'll just get the stinger. I feel the need, the need for Lowrider. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MatchCut. You can email us at MatchCutPod at gmail.com. You know, you can tell your friends about us. If you're enjoying the podcast, like, let someone you know know. Because they'll tell two friends, and then they'll tell two friends, and then eventually we'll have a multi-level marketing thing where everyone <laughs> in the world has heard about it. Yeah, we we can't rely on the movie theater system to distribute our podcast because we're too small and indie for them so tell your friends and until next time uh i've been aaron i'm still mad i think we'll check we'll get back to you and uh we will see y'all next time that's another one in the can bye-bye song uh i haven't heard too many comments about it i mean i still really like it so oh, oh we're recording oh shit oh oh shit
Thankfully, I, with the power of editing, no one will ever hear this until I stick it at the end after 30 seconds of outro music. Um, all right. <clears throat> Hi, and welcome to Match Cut.